Uh, since August, we have been studying the book of Romans. And uh, one thing that we've said many times, and let me say again, it is the knot in the bow of the Bible, according to Martin Luther. Without the book of Romans, there would be a lot of questions that would not be answered. Put another way, it's a capstone in the arch of the history of redemption. And one cannot read the book of Romans and either decide uh, to fall down in amazement at the gospel of Jesus Christ or to to simply say, "I, I don't believe that. In fact, I would encourage you, if you're not a believer, make sure you know what you don't believe. Don't, don't assess the gospel through churches or believers, but through what the Word of God says. And I would encourage you to either read the book of John or read uh, the book of Romans. Now, I want to bring us up to speed as to where we are. And, and a, a summation coming up to chapter 5 where we are. And uh, to do that, I want to read uh, a quote by C.S. Lewis. And he says this. But the main thing that we learn from a serious attempt to practice Christian virtues is that we fail. If there was any idea that God had set us uh, some sort of exam and that we might, be, uh, might get good marks by deserving them, then that has to be wiped out. If there were any idea of a sort of bargain, any idea that we could perform our side of the contract and thus put God in our debts so that it was up to him to perform his side, that has to be wiped out. Everyone has the idea of an exam or a bargain. The first result of real Christianity is to blow this to bits. That's what Paul is saying in Romans. The book of Romans in Paul's thesis statement is that no one in this room or in this world would be justified by works or by what you do. There's no exam that's out there. And if you're here today and you're thinking that there might, I'm trying to be a good Christian or I'm trying to be a good Reformed Christian, then you've missed the gospel. And so Paul tells us from chapters 1 through chapter 4, he proves this thesis that no man should be justified by works Because we need a righteousness that comes from God. And that righteousness is through the second Adam. The God-man, Jesus Christ. That in Him, by looking to Him by faith, which is also a gift of God, we are complete and we are free. In chapter 4 he says Abraham was saved this way. He proves it historically. That Abraham was justified... 400 years before the Ten Commandments. He was justified before there was ever circumcision so that both Jews and Gentiles might claim Abraham as our father. And if you're a believer today and you've been born again by the Holy Spirit, regenerated, united to Christ, then you are sons and daughters of Abraham. If not, if you're not united to Christ, you're not in the second Adam, you're in the first Adam. And you're dead in your sin and your trespasses. So now what we've been doing, we went to chapter 5 and then we had the holidays and snow days and et cetera, et cetera. We're looking at the incredible implications if you're a believer today, if you're truly in Christ. And what are the implications that we've seen already? Well, you have peace with God. You're no longer at war with God. God's not at war with you. We've seen that we have access through faith. You can ride down the road and talk to God. God is here. Why does God come uh, to meet with sinners? Because he's chosen to. But we come through faith. We have access to God. 
that we have uh, joy, there's rejoicing, we have hope. Even in the midst of suffering, there's purpose in our lives as to why we suffer. And so as we come to our text now, verses 6 through 11, this is very important. Paul needs to assure Christians of this fact, that they are secure in his love. Maybe some of you have been believers for a while and you're beginning to doubt that. And the reason you need to be secure in that is because of the preceding verses, apparently we still suffer as Christians. In fact, I would say that between the time you come to Christ and the time you meet Christ, God is going to test your faith to see if it's just belief or a faith that comes from God that's true and genuine. And therefore, we need to be assured and secure of God's love. Because he just got through, last couple of weeks ago, John, you preached on it, through the Holy Spirit, he has poured out his love in us. Okay, y'all see the context? Because we need to read the text now. That's the context. Here's the text. Verse 6. For while we were still weak and hopeless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. That's an amazing passage that we need to exegete, look at, talk about, and then receive the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we pray for your Spirit's work today. There's no one here who can convert themselves any more than they can make themselves be born the first time. Father, there's no way for me to preach your word uh, apart from the power of your Spirit nor those to uh, hear apart from your Spirit. So we pray that you would help us both and that Christ might be glorified and that sinners might be saved and that Christians might once again be amazed at the gospel. We ask it in your name and for your sake. Amen. Uh, Mary Beth and I have a, a bit of a running joke. I tell her, I love, uh, I love you, and, and she always teases and says, give me the details. <laughs> well, it's easy to say you love someone. Well, hey, I love you. I love you, honey. Let's go in the back seat of the car. I mean, it's just easy to say I love you, and, but, but you see, uh, true love must be demonstrated. It's not something you say, something you do. And this is why I highly recommend marriage. Because you see, when you get married and you stand before God and witnesses, you take vows to one another. And I want to say this to you who have taken vows. You make vows of commitment, unconditional, in plenty and want, in joy and sorrow, in sickness and health. And friends, you begin to discover 
if love is going to be demonstrated when there's more want than plenty and more sickness than health and more sorrow than joy. Love demonstrated. And this is what we see here in our text. We see that God's love for us while we were yet sinners has been demonstrated to us. This is exactly what Paul wants to get to cross as we begin to wane and wonder, does God really love me? Does he really care about me? What good has it been to become a Christian? In vain have I kept my hands clean. Every time I want to get close to God, it seems as though my world falls apart. So here's what Paul's doing in these verses. And, and I'll tell you this. I have, I have had a paradigm shift in my understanding of 5 to 8, chapters 5 to 8. And we're going to look at it for the, for the next several uh, weeks and months maybe. But I always thought that the first four chapters were about justification, work of God. And, uh, and then 5 through 8 is about, yeah, but you need to be holy. It's about sanctification. But really, five and following, and you need to get this, you need to understand this, Paul is trying to give the implication that if you are in Christ, you're secure. And therefore, when you come to Romans chapter 8, that kind of completes this whole section that begins in the verses that we're looking at, he says, um, whom God foreknew, he, he predestined. Those he predestined, he justified. And those he justified, he'll glorify. And I remember for years I thought, why didn't he put sanctification in there? Well, that's assumed. And why is sanctification assumed? Well, because if you know your security and what Christ has done for you, you're not struggling to be free. Like if you're an unbeliever and you're trying to do, work your way to God, you're absolutely free to struggle. You're absolutely free in Christ and you're free to be sanctified. And then, of course, we see at the end of Romans 8 where Paul says uh, that in all these things we're more conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or demons, neither the present or future or powers, neither height nor depth or anything of this creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now let me ask you, if you're a believer in Christ, is that, uh, is that good news? You're secure. Now, how's Paul going to argue this in the few verses that we have before we come to the Lord's table? Well, it's an argument that was used a lot at that time that's, in modern terms, we call it an a priori argument. It is an argument that goes like this, from the lesser to the greater. Or a logic that, well, based on this, then obviously this. And it goes, it would be like this. If your siblings love you, if your brothers and sisters love you, how much more does your mom and dad? That's the argument. So what is, what is the argument here in our text? Well, basically he's saying this. If Christ died for you while you're sinners, while you're enemies, how much more can we rejoice in God because we're now reconciled? Now, friends, this is important. And I guess if I had a proposition, it would be uh, something uh, to this effect. While the death of Christ when we were enemies should stun us when we first believe that Christ has died for our wretch like you, then how much more should you be transformed as you realize that you're no longer enemies but friends? Do you understand the argument this is? 
me ask you before we go. I only have two points, the lesser argument, the greater argument. There's my points. Does that matter to you? Uh, the love of God. Yeah, sure, great. I, I believe that. Yeah, Jesus loves me, and we sing the songs. And uh, are you, are, Is that love shown in like you can't wait till he comes back? You can't wait till you meet him? Uh, do you know there are Christians that are like this out there in the world? Or is your waiting for Jesus kind of like uh, waiting to, you know, at the dentist's office to have your tooth pulled? You see what I'm saying? I mean, is there an expectancy that, man, this is my first date, and I can't wait till he comes through the door. I can't wait to pick her up. The date's set, man. I'm excited. An anticipation of what is to come. Or is your life marked by, well, you know what? Lord God, I really want to submit my life for what you've done for me. You secured me in Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, what is wrong with me? I I really, really want to be holy. And so there's going to be one or two responses to this sermon. Either there's going to be an indifference because you don't understand the first argument. And we'll look at that. You don't understand that, John, what you, the first vow is, do you believe that you are a sinner and deserve God's displeasure? And, and frankly, you've prepared me for worship to think about standing before not only the angels but him who created the angels. I mean, what are you doing with you? What are we doing with our lives? How is the gospel impacting us? So, I guess this sermon gets a little bit directed at believers because if we've lost that sense of awe and being stunned, it is because we don't understand the greater side of the argument. So, let's look at the two arguments and then let's come to the Lord's table. First, God's love is demonstrated in the lesser argument. And notice what he says in verse 6. If you would, look at your bulletin there. This is God's word. For while we were still weak, I like the translation, hopeless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners that Christ died for us. Now, I know it sounds strange to say this verse is a, is a lesser argument. I'm not saying it's, it's the death of Christ is less than. But if you go to verse 9 and, and following, it's in those verses he's saying in light of what has happened, much more shall we be saved in verse 9. In verse 10, much more uh, shall, having been reconciled shall we be saved. And then verse 11, more than that. We rejoice in God. So let me put it. Uh, let me put it another way. If you read the Book of Acts, you know what the you know what the foundation piece of the Book of Acts is. You know what the message is: Christ is risen. It is Christ's death on our behalf that has made all things new. And friends, let me tell you, all things are new. And if you're not a Christian, nothing's new. Only thing you have to look forward to is death, and you're hoping that Christianity is not true. You're hoping there's not a second death. But even our great joys and hopes, if you're an unbeliever, whether it's in a boy or a, a girl or getting married or, or making a lot of money, the money goes away, the people you love go away. But you see, um, it's, it's in this context, though, that we, be, we begin to discover the love of God when you begin to understand 
how separated that you are from him. You can't, you can't appreciate, like, you can't appreciate the first proposition, the second, until you understand the first. So let me say to you, uh, what, what is the back, I mean, what is the backdrop of the love of Christ? The backdrop is us and our sin and the darkness. And until you understand several things, you can't appreciate the blood of Christ. It's just teaching. It's Sunday school stuff. It's uh, conservative Christians believe this, and liberal Christians believe this, and Baptists believe this, and Reformed people believe this. But does it move us to holiness, to righteousness? Well, here's, here's the things that he says. In, in the arguments about man. And until you get this, you'll never know the love of Christ. First off, he says that man is without strength. If you're not a believer, you have no hope. There, there is no strength. You're utterly hopeless. You, you can't make yourself change. Don't you know that? You, you, every year you have a New Year's resolution and you want to be, you're, this year I'm going to be nicer to my wife. I'm going to be sweeter to my husband. And of course, we all know that doesn't last because eventually they tick you off and the problem in your marriage is always who? Your spouse. And until that person changes, life's not going to be good for me. Matter of fact, I might ch just change wives or husbands. You're hopeless. You ever try to make yourself love people? Can the law of God make you love? I mean, the law can tell you you can't do this and you can't do that. Uh, but the law can't make you love people. And you know what? That's terrible, ain't it? Unless God does something, you're hopeless. But the scripture tells us in the lesser argument that while we were yet hopeless, Christ came. And he died for us. One of, my, um, one of the best illustrations I've ever heard about hopelessness is I'm reading the, the book uh, Anna Karina. And uh, I'm on page 60. I've got about 780 to go. But, uh, <laughs> but it's at the same period of, of this story I heard about uh, uh, Nicholas, who was a czar, who uh, had a, uh, one of his general's son. He gave him a good job uh, at one of, the, one of the forts to count the, count the treasury money, the money. And so this guy, the general's son, blew it all on gambling. And he was, he, he was borrowing money from the treasury. And then when it came to where he had to pay all the troops, he didn't have enough money. And so he pulls a gun out, and he's going to shoot himself. And so he writes a note, and he's sitting there looking, uh, thinking about uh, shooting himself. And, uh, and the note that he wrote was, a, a debt I, I owe who can pay. And, uh, but before he shot himself, he, he uh, fell asleep. And while he was asleep, Tsar Nicholas happened to come in the room. And he saw the note, and he saw the situation. And over the note, he wrote, debt paid, Tsar Nicholas. That's where you are, apart from God. You deserve the wrath and curse of God. Come on. Or you're hopeless. You can't make yourself clean up. You can't go, yeah, I can't wait to get for those angels. Because you know that you're not worthy. But he also says, uh, verse uh, 6, he says that we're, we're ungodly. Now, let me unpack that word for you. That's a nice God word. But you know what ungodly means? It just means ah, you're not interested in God. At best, you use God. Maybe God will take you to heaven and 
you put a few coins in the plate. But ungodly means that you're, you're toward something else. You're not toward him. Uh, I remember when I, was, um, when I was in high school or junior high school, uh, I was very fortunate. I had older brothers, y'all, many of y'all know this, and we were a fairly popular family. And so this girl uh, got interested in me, and uh, I thought she was a cute girl, and, uh, and so I kind of, you know, fell in puppy love. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, but uh, I, I really think as uh, soon as... Uh, the kind of the connections allowed her to get into the, the group, you know, the sorority or the whatever. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, the, the love one there. <laughs> and I'll never forget feeling so abused, so you, so... I'm not bitter about it anymore. I'm okay, okay? <laughs> In case you're wondering. I overcame it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, let's think about that. You know, just getting used like that. Well, friends, friends... That's probably what you do to God. Christians do it to God. If you're a Christian, certainly if you're an unbeliever, you're not toward God. You're ungodly. You break the first commandment. You're not interested in Him, okay? And yet it's in the midst of that it says that Christ died for us. And then it says um, that we were um, sinners. And the word there means wayward. just simply means you missed the mark. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But let me tell you, God demands perfection. He demands you hit the mark. Why? Because he's God. He's just. He's holy. But when we couldn't hit the mark, Christ came and was hit on our behalf. Because he hit the mark and substituted. He did that if you're a believer. You understand? And one last thing. And then I want to make application and move to the next one. You know what verse 10 says? While we were yet, what? Enemies of God. And you might think, well, I'm not an enemy of God. I'm not, I mean, I, I, mean, I kind of like God, the good man upstairs. Helped us win the uh, national championship or whatever. But you say, what you need to understand is whether you believe it or not, if you're outside of Christ, you're his enemy. I know you don't hear that a lot today. Matter of fact, I, I, I was listening to a preacher the other day, and, and I thought, you know, where's the, where's the gospel? My, y'all wonderful people, just try harder to be like Jesus. And I'm thinking, people need Christ. You need Jesus Christ. You don't need to be like Jesus. It's hard. You can't even keep the Ten Commandments. You want to be like Jesus? And so, but we're enemies. And I want to read just a couple of things that Jonathan Edwards says, and then I really am almost through. But Jonathan Edwards, on talking about the enemy of God, if you've never read anything by Jonathan Edwards, you really ought to read him. Besides sinners in the hand of of an angry God in the 11th grade, English. Um, Notice what he says. And if you're you're not not a Christian right now, listen to what he says here. If if you know that you're not a believer, or you know you're, you're wondering, maybe I'm not that interested in God. He says, the power of the enmity of natural men against God is so great that it is insurmountable with finite power. It has too great and strong a possession of the heart to be overcome by any created power. Indeed, a natural man never sincerely strives to root out his enmity against God. His endeavors are at best hypocritical. He delights in his enmity and chooses it. Neither can others do it, though they sincerely and in their utmost endeavor to overcome this enmity. 
If godly friends and neighbors labor to persuade them to cast away their enmity and become friends to God, they cannot persuade them to do it. And though ministers use never so many arguments and entreaties, set forth the loveliness of Christ, tell them of the goodness of God to them, hold forth God's own gracious invitations and entreat them never so earnestly to cast off their opposition and be reconciled, yet they cannot overcome it because they are enemies of God. How many ministers and friends have come to you to entreat you through the the curse of God, the wrath of God, to entreat you through the love of God, the work of Christ, the death of Christ, His blood shed for you, and you spurned it all. I would suggest to you that you look up the word reprobate because reprobate means those who will never believe. And if in the love of Jesus Christ, if for some of you, for this morning, for the first time, you will understand your need for Christ, then you will see his love demonstrated to you. But if not, you're an enemy. If not, you don't think you're an enemy, but you really are because you want God to get you into heaven just the way that girl wanted me to help her get in the sorority but no interest in him. So that's the lesser argument, real briefly, on the the greater argument. If this, then logic says, of course this. And this is where I want you as believers to get to. I want you to see that, that according to what we just read, you're without hope apart from what God has done. And I don't care how long you've been a Christian or what a good Christian you've been and that you're better than most Christians. Oh, let me, t- let me tell you, you're probably the ones have not in the last six months wept over your sin or thought about the hardness of your heart or been so crushed by your own sin, far be it that your spouse is the problem. You're the problem of the world. But God has loved you. Why? Because while you were a sinner and enemies of God, he died for you. So where is the great argument? Well, verse 9, 10, 11. Therefore, therefore, since we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him through from the wrath of God. Verse 10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. While we were enemies by his death, much more now are we reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? And then verse 11, Much more that, than that we rejoice in God. Do you see that? If you're secure in Christ and he's having to discipline you, are you going, What in the world is wrong with me? Why can't I not submit to Christ? What, what, where, where is my... What's going on with me? He is trying to say, listen, friends, if, if while you were sinners, Christ died, how much more is God your friend now that you're his? Do you need God to be your friend? Maybe you don't need him to be your friend. Godly people do. And godly people aren't self-righteous people. Godly people are humble people. I always tell people, if you want to join Redeemer, the only requirement is you must believe that you're the worst person joining the church. Then we all get along, right? Because, you see, the much more is our union with Christ and His resurrection. 
Is that much more impacting your life? Does it, and I'm telling you, if you're a Christian and, and you're like, Lord Jesus, I really want to get where I need to go. Let, let me tell you, he's never going to leave you nor forsake you. Your salvation is certain, but it's not completed yet. It's complete when you meet Christ. But from here to there, you need to know he'll never leave you nor forsake you. John Trapp put it this way. Listen to this. Puritan. It is a greater work of God to bring men to grace than being in the state of grace to bring them to glory. Because sin is far more distant from grace than grace is distant from glory. The hard work's been done. Grace uh, is much closer to glory than it is to sin. And that's what he's saying. God is your friend. Now, what is the application of this? Well, you, 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 can't, you can't keep being cast upon Christ if you think you're getting there on your own as a Christian. And you go one or two places. If you forget the gospel, you either become very self-righteous. You're just like, what is wrong with all these people that don't help around church? Now, I'll be honest with you, that bothers me for some of y'all, okay? Let me just slide that in there. That you're, you're, not, you're, you're not participating in the work of Christ. You're just not, and I don't know why you don't. And you need to think about that. Maybe you're not saved. Maybe you are. I don't know. But, but, you, but So you either fall toward that side, which I have a tendency to be the older brother, or else you go, man, forget this. I, my, my sin is overwhelming. I'm still struggling with alcohol. I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with this or that and yet the other. And friends, I'm here to tell you that neither way is the way to go. Neither one of those will change you. But Christ and your union with him and your realization of that will change you. Why? Because you're safe. And so you say, well, how do I know, how do I know this in my own life? Well, here's how you know it. You rejoice in God. That's what he says. First, you're kind of rejoicing in the hope, and then you're rejoicing in suffering, but now you just rejoice in God. Will your circumstances ever change? Maybe not. Will your finances ever get better? Maybe not. Will you ever get married? Maybe not. Will your spouse ever change? Will your marriage ever change? Maybe not. Maybe not. But for those who are beginning to understand the gospel, you know what you rejoice in? God. You have joy. So, things aren't going to change. Christ has changed my whole eternity, and I rejoice in that. You know... uh, I think I'm going to end there. I, I have a wonderful illustration I want to end with. I'll save it for next week because it's time for us to worship together in communion. So let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the work of our risen Lord that we who are in Jesus Christ are in Him secure. Lord, forgive us for our self-righteousness, for our not every now and then being caught up short by what you've done for us and that wonderful grace you give us that we give to everybody else. No, our hearts are often hardened and uh, we think we deserve things from you and we think we deserve things from other people. And so there are those who are here who are bitter this morning. There are those who think you owe them and you've given your son and, and if you died for us while we're sinners, how much more through your resurrection can we be changed? Lord, bless now as we come to communion that we would worship you and adore you for what you've done for us. And Father, for those who are not believers, Father, I pray that they might ask themselves, what are they feeding upon? 
Do they have any life? Is there life in their marriage? Is there life in their relationship with their kids? Is there life at all in them? Lord, would you convert them? Cause them to see Christ lifted up and rest in him. And I ask these things in your name. Amen.